If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Malachi chapter 2, please. Malachi chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 10 through 17, and the message is entitled, Faithful to God in Dating and Marriage. It has been 139 years since Zerubbabel returned from the captivity of Babylon, around 536 B.C., 123 years since Haggai and Zechariah have rebuked and encouraged the people to build a temple and also proclaimed that the Messiah and the kingdom would come. That was around 520 B.C. 48 years it's been since Nehemiah returned to build the walls and Ezra teach the word of God, 45 B.C. Now it is around 397 B.C. and the people have become disillusioned disheartened with God's love, resulting in being unfaithful to the covenant. They had, re- they had turned away from God to live for sin. Chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, and 2, 8 is a key verse. The priesthood had become defiled, as we've seen in chapter 1, verse 6, to chapter 2, verse 9. And the people now had become disobedient. The people include the priest, chapter 2, 10, down to 3, 15. The problem was they were still coming to the temple offering sacrifices as if they were living for God. Nothing changes from generation to generation. <laughs> it's the same as we'll see. We want to look at um, the people's violation of God's covenant along with the covenant of marriage through a threefold lens. Let me read here chapter 2, verse 10 through 17. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do you deal treasurely with one another? By profaning the covenant of the fathers. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. And Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of foreign God. May the Lord cut off from tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awakened and aware. Yet, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive with goodwill from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you've dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring, therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treasurely with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, what is the, Lord, what is the God? Where is the God of justice? Wow. The people have violated God's covenant along with the covenant of marriage. It's characterized by a threefold lens here that we can see it through. First, we have the people were being unequally yoked in verse 10 through 12. Second, the people were divorcing their wives, 13 through 15. And thirdly, the people were joining God to their sin in verse 16 and 17. 
We begin with the people being unequally yoked. That's where it all starts, 10 through 12. The prophet Malachi, notice, accused the people of being unfaithful to the covenant of God in verse 10. Malachi presents the two, uh, two rhetorical questions that reveal the guilt of the people and the priests. The first focuses on the spiritual relation to God. Listen to his words. Have we not all one father? All rhetorical questions that we've noticed have one correct answer. It's very obvious. The correct answer here is yes. Their spiritual answer here uh, is that their spiritual father was God. Yahweh, their covenant God that raised the nation up for himself. Listen to the scriptures. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Exodus 19, 5 and 6. There you find various ones in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Nehemiah, minor prophets, major prophets, all over. Notice the second focuses now on their physical existence related to God. Has not one God created us? The correct answer again is yes. They were created by God Almighty through the line of Adam and Eve, male and female. Genesis 1.27. Malachi, having verified their spiritual human origin and their spiritual of the people and the priests, notice, accused them now of their general crime. He charged them with the nature of their crime. Why do we deal treacherously with one another? I like Malachi. He includes himself. We, like Nehemiah, like Daniel. The word treacherously means to be deceitful and faithless towards each other, family and nation. They were no longer living by the truth of God's word, his holiness, gracious compassion, but like unbelievers living for themselves in sin. Notice he charged them with uh, breaking their vow to God by profaning the covenant of the fathers. The covenant vow to God was compared to a marriage vow. As you know, Israel was the wife of God. In, in Jeremiah 3.14, he says, Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord Yahweh, for I am married to you. The word profaning means to defile, pollute, or desecrate the covenant at Sinai with Moses handed down to the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then notice in verse 11, the prophet Malachi accused them of the specific crime they were committing. Malachi charged the entire nation, Judah has dealt treacherously, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah was the northern kingdom of David with Benjamin, remember, prior to the captivity. Now they were all one nation. The charge against Judah was that she had dealt treacherously here. The word again is the same as in verse 10, to act deceitful, faithless. Israel was the northern kingdom, as you know, prior to the captivity. Now it's all one nation. The charge against Israel was the act of abomination. Abomination, the word means this, something disgusting to God. The context will determine what that object is that he is disgusted over. Jerusalem was the capital of, of the nation. Where Jerusalem, the name means teaching of peace. Jerusalem is the most 
mentioned city in the Bible 635 times in the Old Testament, 141 in the New, a total of 776 times in the entire Bible. It will be the capital of the world in the Millennial Kingdom. Notice Malachi declared the treacherous abomination of the nation. Now he names it. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. This is it. Judah had profaned, defiled, polluted the marriage institution. The people of the nation had compromised the covenant of marriage to marry only Hebrew believers living for Yahweh. This was a joining of light to darkness, which furthered their commitment to darkness. Sometimes Christians think they can handle darkness, and they find out they get burned. The institution of marriage was loved by Yahweh. Notice the covenant of God. The institution of marriage was God's design for a man and a woman to be husband and wife and to have children. The institution was the gateway to retain their moral honor and character when they came together sexually. Notice the people and priests had married pagan women of the land. He has married the daughter of the foreign god. Women who did not know and believe in Yahweh, His holiness, the sanctity of marriage. Women worshiping gods, many of them fertility gods, with sexual perversion and rights that furthered the corruption of these men. Nothing new in the past. Solomon didn't pay heed. In 1 Kings 11, 1 and 2, it says, But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughters of Pharaoh, women of Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, Kittites, from the nations of whom the Lord has said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. It should be lust. And he walked away from God. He worshiped foreign gods. Then we have Ezra down the road, the history. You think we would, they learned from Solomon? Nope. Ezra 9, 1 through 4 says the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites were practicing the abomination of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, Amorites to, by marrying the daughters of mixing the holy seed with the people of the land. Unequally yoked. If that was not enough, you think they would learn Nehemiah's time comes, chapter 13, 23 and 24 in those days also. I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. It's like Spanglish. Neither English nor Spanish. Wow. Notice verse 12 now. The prophet Malachi pronounced judgment over the people and the priests for profaning the covenant of marriage. The guilty of the violation were to be cut off from the nation. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, the man who does this. The prophet speaking directly as in the third person, representative of God here. Being a treacherous abomination to God, corrupting themselves, being unequally yoked. Defiling the institution of God, marriage. 
being unfaithful to Yahweh, disobeying Him, dishonoring Him. If you're a single person, you're a young person, listen up. Pay close attention today. If you're a single adult, pay double attention. Those guilty of this sin did so being fully conscious that they were breaking the law. Remember, this is God speaking. He's not lying. Being awake and aware, it says. They knew they were breaking the law as if it didn't apply to them anymore. Be careful. Because, well, you know, that's the Old Testament. Well, you know, we're not a Puritan people anymore. Be careful. You start living cultural theology. They were concerned, or they were not concerned with God punishing them. It was just out of, out of their mind. We're good. Those guilty were still coming to worship Yahweh as if they were one with Him. Yet you brings, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. They brought an offering to Yahweh. This is adding insult to injury. This is presumptuous arrogance. The one they were dealing with was the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven, the one who defeated every empire till this day, the one who would judge them. I wish you could um, hear all the tragic cases of the many who have suffered by marrying a non-believer who came to this church in the last 37 years. The destruction that's taken place in their life and their children. The Bible is very clear that a believer is not to marry an unbeliever. And the principle applies to the dating and engagement as well as business practices. Business because if you're a believer and you go in partnership with a non-believer and he wants to pay under the table, then you're part of it. If they want to do something illegal, you're part of it. Now, you can be a Christian boss and hire non-believers and be the example. You're making the decisions, but you don't partner with a non-believer. Never. It'll eat you alive. Boyfriend, girlfriend, darkness will win you. It'll corrupt you. It'll defile you. Guaranteed. The command is to obey. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 6.14. It's not a suggestion. No one ever has married a person they didn't date first. <laughs> Simple. If you hang out with non-believers, you're going to marry a non-believer. Simple. The biblical principle is clear. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6.14 to 16. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness, and what accord has Christ with Belial, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever, or what agreement has the temple of God with idol? None. No. No exception. The reason is equally clear. Listen to 1 Corinthians 16.16. 16. For you are the temple of the living God, a believer. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. The command comes with a promise, by the way. 
It says, therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch the unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be a son and daughter to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 1 Corinthians six seventeen to 7, 1. Paul is talking to the Corinthians, carnal Christians. When you wanted to present a corrupt, debauched, immoral person on the stage in Greece, you put a Corinthian up there. Wow. The people were being unequally yoked. That's where it starts. Young people, single people, be careful. Notice secondly, the people were divorcing their wives, 13 through 15. The prophet Malachi Exposed the hypocritical worship of the people were coming to God after uh, to the altar in hypocrisy. Therefore, he rejected their worship. Malachi rebuked the men for their insincere repentance. The men, having committed the sin of marrying unbelieving women, attempted to give some public evidence of their regret. Listen to the words. And this is the second thing you do. Listen. One sin will lead you to another. Sin is not static, but progressive and cruel and has diminishing returns. The more you do it, the less gratification. You have to push the envelope. You start with the arm around the neck, then the waist, and it keeps going. Real simple. These men drenched the brazen altar with their tears as if truly... They were sorry about their divorcing their wives and marrying pagan women. The men would weep convulsively, overflowing with tears, it implies. These men would be crying, meaning groaning and lamenting. <laughs> you know, that kind, of, that kind of stuff. Outwardly, they appeared to be brokenhearted about their sin, but God saw past their emotional display to the unrepentant heart about their sin. This is remorse, regret for the consequences, but not for the evil of the sin committed. That is self-deception. Notice Malachi revealed God rejected their offerings. Still in 13. God did not accept the gift, so he does not regard the offering anymore. The word regard means to turn away. God saw the offering as offensive. God was not pleased with their sinful lives, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. The word goodwill means with pleasure or favor. God rejected their offering just as they had rejected him. And his word, God saw it as a worship of self-will, not God's will. Look at 14. The prophet Malachi expressed that the sin of the people was witnessed by God. These are not rumors. Malachi quoted the words of the people to God, rejecting their tears and offerings. Yet you say, for what reason? Here we go again, spiritual teenagers. 
Their words to God are sarcastic and dishonorable, just as their previous ones that we've heard. When you are willfully blind to your sin and someone points it out, it offends us. What are you talking about? Who are you to judge me? Wow. Notice Malachi revealed God rejected their tears and offerings for divorcing their wives. God held the man responsible for the marriage because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth. Men initiate. Men ask women to marry them. That's the way it's always been. It always has been. And you'll get your cultural exceptions. But men initiate. Women respond. Ladies, you get to choose who you give yourself away to and who you marry. No one forces you. If they force you, that's rape. If they force you to marry you, you can annul it. You get to choose. You better think well. Notice. When he made his vows to her between them, forsaking all others, taking her as his wife. When he vowed till death do us part, that's why your friends are invited, so they're witnesses against you if you try to divorce. First the groom and the bridemaid, then you who are out there. Well, that's form today. Notice God held a man liable for divorcing with no right. Yet she is your companion, the wife, uh, your wife by covenant. So she was his faithful companion to complete him to not be alone in life. Genesis 2.18. It's not good the man should be alone. She was his um, loyal wife to meet his needs in life. His help meet. Genesis 2.18 again. Now notice in verse 15, the prophet Malachi explained the people had violated the will and purposes of God. Malachi declared another rhetorical question to affirm their treachery to God. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? The only correct answer is yes. God had joined them as one by their vows in the institution of marriage. God made both one being believers to direct and guide them by God's Spirit. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Amos 3 3? No. You have the same Bible, same God? There should be no arguments about how you live. Wow. Malachi proposed the question and why one? The oneness here is after the altar. By the way, you become one at the altar. You celebrate in the honeymoon bed. You become one here. Malachi provided the answer to his own question of why one. He seeks godly offspring. Mark it well. God wanted two believers to raise their children to be believers in God. The church is always one generation away from extinction. You evangelize from outside and you instruct from within. Malachi warned, notice, the treacherous men who had divorced their wives at the end of 15. They were to guard their evil hearts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit. 
They were to not betray their wives by divorce and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. In other words, there were still some who hadn't done it. They were contemplating, ready to do it. He's warning. Once you've jumped off the building, it's too late. You cannot come back on the roof. You're in the air. You are committed. Like it or not, you're heading down. The devastation to every person of the families of divorce. I don't need to illustrate. Our society is the greatest illustration. It's tragic. Divorce from the 40s onto the 60s was a thing of shame, disqualifying many in, the, in society in many different ways. There was a moral consciousness. There was a societal uh, standard. Family members kept it quiet. A person didn't make it known unless they absolutely had to. When I grew up, when I was 12 years old in 1962, uh, when you applied to the uh, uh, L.A. police force, if you were divorced, you were rejected. Simple. Divorce began to be more accepted in the 70s when no-fault divorce came in. Putting divorce on lightning speed. This was the result that accompanied the sexual revolution in the late 60s into the 70s. This was accompanied with the women's lib movement that only fueled the battle of the sexes, further fracturing the home and families. Prior to the 70s, one person had to be at fault of adultery or the act that breached some moral sense of the marriage or you could not get a divorce in the courts. Divorce today is as common as getting rid of a car or a house and Christians aren't doing any better. Most people already know that around 50% of marriages in the United States fail in divorce. And of course, you have to factor in their serial marriages, many of them, okay? But just a rough thing. The breakdown by number of marriages is 41% of first marriages end in divorce. 60% of second marriages end in divorce. 73% of third marriages end in divorce. You know why? Because you don't hang in there as long the next time. In America, there is one divorce approximately every 36 seconds. That's nearly 2,400 divorces per day, 6,800 divorces per week, 876,000 divorces a year. The average length of a marriage that ends in divorce is eight years. People wait an average of three years after divorce to remarry. If they remarry, many do not. The average age for couples going through their first divorce is 30 years old. Christians are not doing any better. The people were divorcing their wives. See, these kind of topics pastors don't touch because, you know, they get, I don't want to offend anybody. Yeah. I don't want to offend you, but if you're offended, so be it. It's the word of God. Notice thirdly, the people were joining God to their sin, verse 16 and 17. 
The prophet Malachi declared God's stance on divorce. Malachi stated the view of divorce by God is unchanging. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. Mark that well. The covenant God, Yahweh, and creator, the supreme authority over them, the one who had been, they had been unfaithful to, the proclamation that he hates divorce, and the word hey communicates hostility and feelings, unable to tolerate someone or something with feelings of retaliation. God takes no pleasure in divorce. Malachi stated the reason, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Divorce results in injustice and injury to the wife when the man pledges to cover her with his garment, symbolic of vows and provider, and to protect her. The one speaking is the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven, the one who will fight against their injustice now. They've gone back on their vow. Malachi stated the warning, therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. The phrase take heed means to examine and beware of one's heart of wicked evil against their wives here. The crime they were committing was treachery, deceitful unfaithfulness, having no grounds for legal divorce, adultery. Now notice in verse 17, the prophet Malachi declared God had grown tired of their arrogant response to him. Verse 17 is made the first verse of chapter 3 by some, but I believe it's pivotal or transitional looking forward and backwards, so I include it in my text here. Malachi revealed their insulting words. He told the men they had tried the patience of God and had come to the end of it. You have wearied the Lord with your words. The word weary means to cause to be exhausted by their words, they, their excuses, their justification of their evil to divorce. When God comes to the end of his patience, there's a worse commentary on man's evil than on God's impatience, ladies and gentlemen. He told them their words were dishonorable towards God. Yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? Your parent, you know exactly what's going on here. The prophet again quoted their very words. Yet you say, the people reveal their vile disrespect for God's perfect knowledge. In what way have we wearied him? Malachi revealed the words of the men that had wearied him. First, the men were saying God was one with their sin. He quoted the words that said God approved of their sin. Listen to their words. In that you say everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. They were joining Yahweh, the holy God, to the evil of these men. They were saying God approves this as he sees it with his own eyes. Wow. Today, people say I'm a Christian, I'm homosexual. They're saying the same thing. Wow. He quoted their words that said God was pleased by this evil. And he delights in them. The word delight means to take pleasure. A complete insulting contradiction to God's perfect attributes and character. Notice he quoted their words that God was indifferent to their sin. Or where is the God of justice? 
Ooh. In other words, if God disapproved, why has he not judged us? They misunderstood the patience and mercy of God for indifference that he did not object to their evil. Worse yet, that he approved of their evil. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, your soul, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear your hands are full of blood, Isaiah 1, 14 and 15. You have brought me no sweet cane with honey, nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities, Isaiah 43, 24. Hmm. How many times have you met a person that says they're a Christian? Maybe you're at a park or somebody, maybe you're a park in a picnic and they're talking to you and they're dropping all kinds of profanity, every other word. Or they're chug-a-lugging on a Michelob or a Heineken or, see, I still remember. <laughs> or some sweet, wiggly little thing goes by and they say something derogatory. And they call themselves Christians. Hmm. The Pharisees came testing Jesus to trap him with the question regarding divorce. Matthew 19.3 says, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Shemaiah taught that adultery was the only reason a woman could be, could, uh, um, could, could be divorced. And a woman could never divorce except for a man being impotent or uh, he couldn't provide or he was a leopard. He was a conservative. Hillel, with the L, that's how you remember the liberal. He said you can divorce your wife for any cause. She, bakes, she burns the bagels. She doesn't respond right, whatever. Divorce her. Rabbi Akiba said if you saw a woman more beautiful than your wife publicly, then your, your wife became unclean, you could divorce her. These guys had great followings. By the way, you know the 12 disciples, the dirty dozen, they were liberals. If you follow the rest of chapter 19, they said, Lord, if this is the case, it's better not to marry. See, they love the liberalness, see? Wow. In verse 4 through 6 of Matthew 19, Jesus points back to God's original design and creation. Jesus said, have you not read at the beginning he created the male and female? Okay. The only thing that identifies you as a human is male and female. Your race, your color, everything's stupid. Doesn't matter. Jesus said the purpose and design of God for male and female was marriage and the reason man leaves father and mother is to be joined to his wife and the two should become one flesh. Verse 5 and 6. And whatever God puts together, no man can separate. Divorce. Marriage joins a man and a wife and they become one flesh at the altar. Celebrated the honeymoon bed, as I said. Then in verse 7 of Matthew 19, Jesus was confronted with the concession of, of, of divorce by Moses in the law. The concession within the law was a decent provision so as not to have society all fractured with all kinds of divorces. But it did not condone or make it easy. And you find that in uh, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 through 4. Now, many have misunderstood this passage. 
the provision was for some uncleanness. If a man finds some uncleanness in his wife, the problem is the uncleanness is not indicated. So those who interpret that to be adultery are wrong. Because in Leviticus 20, verse 10, and Deuteronomy 22, 22-24, if there was sexual uncleanness, adultery, the judgment was stoned to death. We don't have to worry about what happens with it. If there was uncleanness, they would be stoned to death. Okay? End of argument. All right? The provision was to protect the woman from living under an abuse, abusive and miserable condition, and to have a legal document for her release from marriage before two witnesses. The provision there in Deuteronomy was really a warning to the husband saying, listen, if you give her up and you give her right in a divorce and she goes marry another and he dies, you can't take her back. If she divorces him and marries another and then he dies or he divorces her, you can't take her back. In other words, be careful and think through before you lose what you have. Why couldn't he take her back? Because she really hadn't defiled herself sexually and he caused her to be defiled by divorcing her illegally. Ooh. So it's a warning to the man. Be careful before you lose what you can never get back. The provision discouraged divorce. It did not promote it. And it controlled us who wouldn't get out of whack. Remember, this is after the fall. In Matthew 19.8, it says, Jesus revealed the reason for the concession given to man. Listen carefully. Why? Jesus said, because the hardness of man's heart. That's why. The unwillingness to humble oneself and to forgive. Choosing to live for self. Man's heart is deceitful, desperately wicked, above all things. Jeremiah 79, Matthew 15, 18 through 19. From it comes fornication, adultery, so on and so forth. Nothing has changed. The concession was to regulate some control for the soundness of society in Israel. It was theocracy. God ruled. And Jesus says he permitted allowed in hope of having to go through legal proceedings, causing the man to think through and consider the consequences before he jumped off that building. Social guilt and shame is good about certain things. It tells us that what we're doing is wrong and it shouldn't be done. All of that's gone now. There is no social conscience. We live in an amoral society. I'm not saying that you have to live with guilt if you have a legal divorce biblically, that your mate has committed adultery. But what I am saying is you better not just move on and think that divorce is nothing. It is not nothing. It is something great. The beginning pointed to the creation of Adam and Eve prior to the fall. They were to be one spiritually, sexually, socially, not two. When you come to verse 9 of Matthew 19, Jesus declared the only grounds for divorce is adultery. So nothing has changed with God. Only one ground, 
and he still hates divorce. Jesus said, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, this is the only reason allowed for divorce. Sexual unfaithfulness, the context is marriage. Therefore, it's adultery. The word sexual immorality, porneia, does not refer to sex before marriage in context here, but adultery. If Jesus is talking about sex before marriage at this point, then he never answered the question about marriage and adultery. It's simple. Jesus said the guilty party cannot remarry. So the one who commits adultery does not have the right to remarry. If there is no adultery and they divorce, both commit adultery. If they remarry, they are to be reconciled. So if you do not have grounds for divorce, adultery, you can, you can be single, but you can't, you can't remarry. You'll commit adultery. You're to remain unless you reconcile with each other again. Simple. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 7. The one initiating the divorce causes the innocent party to commit adultery, and the one who marries them commits adultery. Matthew 5.32. Nobody likes to hear this, but suck it up, buttercup. It's what the Word of God says. Now, when you're still married and adultery hasn't taken place, you're not to go out dating. You're still married. Simple. If the innocent party wants to divorce due to adultery, they can scripturally. They have the right. It's not a command. If they choose to forgive the repentant party, great. But you can't renege five minutes later or five days or five months later. So think it before you say, I forgive you. Otherwise, you have to wait for another act of adultery. Is that clear? Genuine repentance does not forgive the sin of an unbiblical divorce. But you do live with the consequences. So if you're truly repenting, God forgives you. You still have some consequences, right? You can't blame God for it, right? Paul the Apostle says remarriage is allowed only to another believer when there is a death of the mate or the divorce is adultery. Many Christians try to make 1 Corinthians 7 abandonment. There's no abandonment in the clause. The word is divorce. Abandonment is when you don't know where they're at. Listen, it's not that, that she's down the street with another guy. It's not that they're in another state. Listen, today with the internet, you can find anybody. It's not abandonment, all right? Simple. The prohibition of Deuteronomy that a wife could not go back to her first husband if she was released from the second marriage is not applicable for today. Why? Because if you repent from your previous marriage and divorce as being a non-believer, you're a new creature, right? You can remarry. Simple. You have a thousand marriages and divorces before you're a Christian. They don't, they don't count. In Christ, they count. That's what we're talking about here, ladies and gentlemen. Paul confirms the words of Jesus. A Christian is not to divorce except for adultery. But if a believer is married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever says, I don't want to be married to you because you're a Jesus freak, then, then you're set free. But he's not so gracious to two believers. Two believers cannot divorce unless adultery. 
So God's harder on the believer than the believer and non-believer. Read it very carefully, 1 Corinthians 7. Before you marry a person, listen to me very careful, young people and single people. Both of you need to be honest with each other about your past. So as not to undermine your marriage or devastate the person who you're going to marry. If you're not sexually pure, then let them know. If you've been married before, had children, had an abortion, had STDs, they're not asking to be your boyfriend or girlfriend. They're asking you to be married to them and have their children. Have some character. If you do not, you potentially undermine your own marriage by feelings of deception, betrayal, and entrapment, resenting the person bitterly, living in great regret, never knowing if they would have married you if you would have told them honestly. The examples in the law, Deuteronomy 22, 13 through 21. The law there, men and women lie. The woman lied that she was a virgin and they found out she wasn't. They stoned her. The man said his wife wasn't a virgin and she was. So he got consequences too. So men and women haven't changed, have they? Nothing new under the sun. Wow. How a woman could think that deceiving her husband-to-be would strengthen his love for her, I don't know. Or that a man would lie on such a thing. We're bad news, aren't we? Now the point is not that a person cannot marry a non-virgin or a divorced person. The point is that of deception, which can result in a lifetime of pain and misery. The only thing that can be done about deception and betrayal is to ask forgiveness and it be imparted or they will divorce sooner or later. And so marriage is not just all sanitized. It's blood and guts at times because of our hearts, ladies and gentlemen. That's the problem. The people were joining God to their sin. And then they blame God. They marry the person. They blame God. Why did God let me? Well, why did you make the decision? God didn't force her on you, force him on you. We want to hang God. This was people's violation of God's covenant along with the covenant of marriage. The people were being unequally yoked. The people were divorcing their wives and the people were joining God to their sin. Nothing new under the sun, Solomon said. Wow. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. We love you, we thank you, we praise you for your word, your goodness. I pray for every person here, Lord, that you minister their heart, deal with them and myself, and the Lord will honor you. So we thank you for your word, Lord, that we can look into that mirror and fix what's wrong. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the radio. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to be born again. You need to ask Him to forgive you. And He will give you eternal life. This is your prayer. If you're not born again, if you want to repent of your sins, Jesus is going to forgive you right now. 
Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Lord and my Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.